Well, hallelujah. Well, this morning, we're going to continue on in the book of Acts, where we've just got to Acts chapter 7, and I had originally scheduled to do 1 through 53 today. And the reason I did that, I knew it was a lot, but it's it's one speech. Stephen is about to, to make a speech. And you remember last week that Stephen um, was, was arrested, and he's about to give a defense of, of, of the accusations that were made against him. And it's this big, long speech. It's actually the longest speech recorded in the, in the book of Acts, in, uh, the longest at all in the book of Acts. And I was like, man, it's, it's one speech. It's one thought. I'm going to knock this out in one Sunday. Somebody must have been praying to get off on time today. Because I had to switch it into two messages because otherwise it would have been a long morning. But I know you guys have been okay with that, right? Hallelujah. But uh, uh, so you have to forgive me when we get to the end if it seems like it's an abrupt end. Because that's another reason why I was going to try to do it all at once is there's not a real good break point in the middle. So we'll do the best we can. Um, but, uh, you know, these, these, uh, these studies that we do like this, we're going verse by verse. So I can't, I can't flub it a little bit to make it work better with our schedule. So we're just going to move on through. So as I said, last week we finished. Stephen um, had just gotten arrested. Um, Stephen was referred to as a man of a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. How many of you want to be referred to as someone like that? I know I do. He had previously been one of the men chosen to serve the widows as a response to the complaints by the Hellenists. And I know Joseph, Pastor Joseph talked about this a little bit last week, but there are several competing theories as to who the Hellenists are. Um... The most likely would be one of these three. They may have been Jews who were living in Jerusalem, but they spoke Greek as their primary language rather than Aramaic. And they likely had their own synagogues and their own services, much like we have denominations today. We have our own services. And, but, but this was, you know, cultural difference. These were Greek-speaking Jews. Or they may have been proselytes. This is actually what I had always been taught, was that they were, they were proselytes. They were Greeks who had converted to Judaism. How many know that evangelism has always been part of the plan of God? The Jews were actually supposed to evangelize and bring people into the fold. Um, or this may have been referring to early Christians whose language and culture was Greek rather than Hebrew. More than likely, it was a mixture of all three. And these are who the Hellenists are. What you have to remember is these are culturally Greek people, and they kind of didn't fit in quite as well as the, the Hebrew-speaking, the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And as long as there has been people, how many know that prejudices have existed? And we separate into groups. We separate into tribes. We, we tend to congregate with people who are just like us. And then even worse, we tend to give that group of people preferential treatment. But how many know that Christianity teaches something different? It doesn't matter if you're rich, you're poor, you're male or female, you're Jew or you're a Greek, you're a slave or you're free or more applicable today what color your skin is. It's, we are all equal, and we are all equally valuable in the sight of God. Amen? 
So Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. If you are all alone, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The reality is, is that, that Jesus levels the playing field. None of us are more valuable to God. And this is something that was rather unique among Christianity. You know, Christianity, uh, there was such a difference with how the Christians treated women and men in their congregation than how any uh, the, the culture did, the, the other religions did, even Judaism. The reality is, is that, that Christianity was the greatest force for, for making men and women and people of different backgrounds and skin colors and races and cultural uh, backgrounds um, equal. But how many know that the church is still full of people? And we still get things wrong sometimes. We don't always live out exactly how we're called to live out. And that's what was happening here, right? So there, there is a, a, a group of people who weren't getting treated the same as the rest. And that's the, the Hellenists. They were complaining because their widows weren't getting taken care of when the, the widows of the Aramaic-speaking Jews, the Hebrew Jews, they were getting taken care of. So they had a problem. So if that gets brought to the church, how many know when there's a problem, that's what we should do? If there's an issue, we, we shouldn't just run away or take... I mean, we should talk about it and, and, and let's deal with it. Amen? So we... we, uh, we they, they come to the church and they say, listen, we got a problem. This is happening. And, and the apostles, they, they acknowledge the problem. They recognize that they have a different responsibility, but they got a group of men together. And Stephen was one of those men. And he was set to, to basically serve the widows. Stephen's ministry starts out with ser- serving soup to widows. You know, so many of us, we want to do ministry, but we want to get ahead of the game. We want, to, we want to do something big for God. But how many know that doing little things for God is just as important? Matter of fact, that's where most people start out. If you want to do something big for God, start with doing something little for God. Because if you won't be faithful in a little thing, how can God or anybody in the church trust you to be faithful in a big thing? Amen? So Stephen steps out in obedience. Seemingly doing something mundane, feeding widows, and he begins operating in power. Acts 6, 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. How many of you guys want to start doing great signs and wonders? How many people think that would be awesome to see lives change, miracles happen? We'll start with something small and see what God will do with you if you're being obedient. But so, so Stephen, he's doing his thing. He's being obedient. He's out there ministering, and he's doing signs and wonders. It's, it's getting, uh, getting powerful, and some people didn't like what was going on. Some opposition sneaks in, and they begin disputing all the things that Stephen is teaching. The problem was is they couldn't compete with the wisdom and with the spirit with whom he was speaking with. So... Since they couldn't compete on that front, they figured they'd do what they thought was the next best thing, and they start spreading rumors. They start spreading lies, saying that he was blaspheming Moses and God, and they gather up all the religious leaders, and they spur them up against him, saying uh, that they need to arrest him. And ultimately, that's what happened. They arrest Stephen, and that's where we find ourselves today. 
In Acts 7, 1, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? So after having arrested Stephen, the high priest, likely Caiaphas, uh, the same one who condemned Jesus, the same one who had questioned Peter and John, he asked Stephen, Are these accusations against you true? You see, the men of the synagogue of the freedmen had incited these men to tell these lies about Stephen, Acts 6.11, and um, says they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Acts 6.13-14 says, and they set up false witnesses. This man never ceases to speak against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, to the high priest's credit, Caiaphas, he at least actually asks, are these things so? He waits for a defense from Stephen. But instead of answering the question directly, Stephen begins to preach. And what we're about to hear from Stephen, like I said earlier, is the longest recorded message in the book of Acts. And the space that is dedicated by Luke to this speech in his letters should tell us that it's pretty important. Luke spends some time making sure this is recorded to share it with us. And then at the end of this, we're going to see that, uh, spoiler alert, Stephen dies. We're going to see the first man martyred for the faith, at least the first one recorded, martyred for the faith. He gives his life. He dies for the faith. And you'll notice in this speech, he actually gives little defense for what he's doing, for what he said. He's not really defending himself, but he begins laying the groundwork for three major themes that are impacting the Jewish leadership, the Jewish people. So through this this week and next week, like I said, we have split this over two weeks, you're going to see three major themes. One is there is progress and change in God's plan for his people. And he's going to share the evidence of that all throughout the Old Testament up until this point, how God has used different men in different places and different times to do different things, all leading towards the purpose of his plan and increasing his kingdom. And the reality is, is that Israel's history is the history of God's acts and movement in the world. The next major theme is that you're going to see is that the blessings of God are not limited to the land of Israel or to the temple. Because that's one of the things they have a problem with, right? He's blaspheming these, this holy place. He's blaspheming the temple. He's blaspheming Israel. And Stevens wants to make a point that, you know what, it's not about the ground you're standing in. Pastor Joseph mentioned last week that really the only important land uh, that, that really was what God came out and said, you're standing on holy grounds, was, was Moses was at the burning bush. And it was less to do with the ground and more to do with God was there. Amen. It's not limited to the temple. It's not limited to the lands. People have worshipped God long before there was a temple. And how many know that God doesn't live in a temple made by human hands? And then for us today, God is living in each and every one of us. And then finally, the third theme is in Israel and its past has a recurring pattern of opposition to God's plans and the men he sends to implement them. 
How many know that Israel had a tendency to miss what God was doing? And how they respond to Stephen is just like how they responded to every other prophet throughout their own history, including Jesus. They resist and get violent. So in verse 2, it says, And then Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to them, go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. So instead of Stephen saying, no, I never said that, or I said that, or here's what I actually said, he just begins to share. He goes into the history of of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And really, this is a message about the relationship between the Jews and God. And he's going to do this. He's going to share this relationship and talk about how God has interacted with the Israelites all throughout history by actually taking a trip through Israel's history. And he starts here with Abraham. How many know that Abraham was called by God before he found himself in Israel's lands? He was in Mesopotamia. He wasn't in the promised land. And God begins this history with the Jews by talking to him outside of the land. There was no temple yet, obviously, and, 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 but God is still moving. God isn't, wasn't waiting around for someone to build a temple so he could finally move. He wasn't waiting around for somebody to stumble in to the promised land so he could finally move. If that was the case, he would have moved to the Canaanites who were already there. But Abraham's called by God before, but before he was found in Israel's lands, and there certainly wasn't a temple yet. And we will see as we progress through, through this that God has been directing his kingdom through many different people and through many different places. Because how many know that God is not limited by people or places? So God calls Abraham to leave Mesopotamia to the land he would show him. And then in verses 4 through 5, it says, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So at God's direction... Abraham packs everything up. And if you know the story, he's actually Abram at the time. (laughs) Packs everything up. And he he gathers his his, his close family and he he leaves Mesopotamia. That here, this land of the Chaldeans, that's actually Mesopotamia. And uh, he makes his way to Haran. And the, the story of Abraham is so interesting because God tells him to leave everything, leave your own land, leave the, the rest of your family, just pack up who's close and head out. I got a plan for you. How, how, how do you think you guys would do if God says, you know what, pack up, leave everything you know and love. I got a plan for you. Some of us have experienced that. And it's not easy. Sometimes stepping out on the calling of God is lonely, it's difficult, you face tough times, but thank God he's there. He never leaves you, he doesn't forsake you, and he helps you get through it. So Abraham, he makes it to Haran, and uh, this is actually where he takes his wife, Sarah. It's actually uh, Sarai at the time, before she's renamed. And then after that, 
he has to gather his family up once again. He grabs Sarah and all those who are with him, including his brother Lot, and they end up heading out to the land of Canaan. And God says, you know what? You're going to have this land. Your offspring is going to have this land. Abraham doesn't even have a kid yet. He's 75 when God tells him to pack it up. And and he's, he's sent out, and he doesn't have a kid yet, and God's making these promises to him. And, you know, it's really easy for us when we go, oh, well, we know what God did. It must have been easy for him to believe, but he was putting his trust in God. Matter of fact, we know that if you know the story of Abraham, he gets a little impatient with God and figures he's going to take things into his own hands. And uh, uh, that's how we have uh, the, the the son of the promise, Isaac, and and, and uh I'm blanking on his name. What's Ishmael? <laughs> Hallelujah. See, see, where's uh, where's Eddie at? Was oh, he back there preaching? He was giving me a hard time because uh, uh, we were playing Family Feud at the Valentine's dinner, and and sometimes when you're up in the spotlight, you're standing light, your brain doesn't work, and he couldn't think of a word. So now we're even. I couldn't think of a a Bible character. Hallelujah. So uh, Ishmael's is is is. is the son of the flesh, basically. It's, it's, it's them doing it, and Isaac is the son of the promise, the son of faith. And, um, but God tells him that, that your offspring are going to inherit this land. He doesn't even have any kids yet, and he's already super old. And then Abraham, even after all this, Abraham remains a foreigner and sojourner in this land, and he never owns even a part of it until Sarah finally dies and he buys a brief portion to bury her. But other than that, he never owns any of this land. It's never his. God made him a promise and he was always looking forward to it and he dies and not not having this land. He dies waiting for his offspring to pick up this land. That's what the scripture says here. He says he gave him no inheritance, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. So Abraham had to take God's word regarding the promise made to him looking ahead. And actually he dies looking ahead. And, and the truth is, is that we read about in the book of Hebrews that all the great men and, and women of faith died without the promise looking ahead to Jesus, who was ultimately the promise that they were waiting for. But they died in faith, believing that he would come. Abraham dies in faith, believing that God would give his inheritance to his offspring just as he promised. Even though that he didn't even have any offspring yet, and he was super old, and Sarah's super old, and she's barren on top of that. He still says, you know what, I'm going to trust God. Some of you guys have trouble trusting God for stuff that's likely, let alone the impossible. And then in Acts 7, 6 through 7, as we continue on, it says, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Now, if that's not enough to test your faith, like, Abraham, I know you're super old. I know your wife's super old. I know you don't have any kids yet, but I'm going to, this land is yours. I promise it to you. It's going to be to your offspring, but they're going to have to be sojourners in that land for a while. And on top of that, for 400 years, not only are they not going to have the lands yet, but they're going to be enslaved in that land. 
you know what? If for many of us today, if that's how God's promises were coming to pass in our life, we would believe that God wasn't answering prayer. We would believe that God wasn't moving. We'd believe that God was was not being faithful. You know, sometimes you need to be patient for what God has promised you in your life. Amen. See, it turns out that God doesn't always move how we'd expect him to move. Have you noticed that? And so many times we grab hold of Scripture and we start claiming it like Americans. Microwave generations. You put the burrito in for 60 seconds and it's done. It doesn't work like that. Sometimes you have to be patient. Who here knows Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. How many know that's an awesome promise? How many have claimed that over your life? So you, you've claimed that over your life. How many claimed it over your life like, like God was going to take care of your problem tomorrow? You see, the, the problem is, is that we look at this stuff. Now, I, I think that this promise is applicable to us today. God knows the plans that we have. But some of you all need to read the verse in front of it. This is what it says in 29.10. For thus said the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you. You see, sometimes God's going to answer his promise and God knows the plans that he has for He's going to prosper you, but you might spend 70 years in captivity first. It doesn't always work out the way we want it to work out. Sometimes God needs to strengthen you. He needs to help you grow. He needs to help you mature. Sometimes things are tough. Now, I'm going to always pray for a quick and speedy resolution. But I'm not going to be shocked if sometimes we have to go through some stuff. And that doesn't mean that God isn't there. That doesn't mean that God isn't answering. It doesn't mean that God isn't moving. It's an opportunity for us to grow. You know, how, how do you expect your faith to increase, to strengthen, if you never actually have to have it? Amen? Sometimes you look forward in faith to promises to God, not seeing them happen as quickly as you would like. But that is why the Scripture says it's with faith and patience we inherit the promises. So in this case, even though that they would face 400 years of captivity, turns out it was actually 430 years, the nation would, that, that enslaved them would be judged. And God's people would come out the, the other side and they would worship God in this place. In other words, they would be free and inhabit the, inherited, the inheritance promised to Abraham. And we know that this happened, right? We know that, that the, the Israelis are enslaved by the Egyptians for 430 years, and then God supernaturally and miraculously sets them free. They come out of slavery. They don't stay in it. And the truth is, is that even while they were in it, God was with them. God was moving. How many of those, sometimes you go through hard times, but that doesn't mean that God's not with you. It doesn't mean that God's not supporting you. Sometimes we go through hard times and, and God is walking through you with it so that you can grow, that you can mature. And it's not evidence that you've failed or that you've fallen somehow. Sometimes you just got to go through stuff. Sometimes it's because we live in a fallen world full of broken people that do broken things. 
We have all kinds of hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. It's not because God's mad. It's because the earth is groaning, waiting for the return of the king. When Adam fell, it didn't just mess up people. It messed up the entire earth. The earth is groaning. So sometimes we go through stuff because we live in a broken world, and God uses those things to help us grow and be prepared to move forward. Amen? But then Stephen continues on in verse 8. He says, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Notice we're just going through this history of Abraham. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So now Stephen brings up circumcision, and circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It was a sign of the promise that God had made. And so Abraham has Isaac, and if you know the story of that, that's a miracle, like I said. I mean, they were old when they had, I mean, I think they were getting to the old, the age that uh, if either one of them farted, dust would come out. I mean, they, they, she was like well over 100 years old when she had the baby. I mean, think about this. This is a supernatural miracle that happens. It's a supernatural miracle that happens. The fact that she was even able to get pregnant, the fact that Abraham was able to get her pregnant, God is doing amazing things. And then Isaac has Jacob. And as you know, Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. It's actually, he's named after the nation he's going to form because then he has the 12 patriarchs, which are the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So God made a covenant with Abraham marked by circumcision, and he was faithful to his promise. Now, it didn't happen in Abraham's day. It took some time, right? But God was faithful. How many know that God is always faithful to his promise? The problem the Jews seem to run into quite often, though, is that they're not always faithful in return. In those days the Jews still circumcised their baby boys. But they failed to obey God in other ways, and their hearts were far from him. And this is what Stephen is pointing out here as he's sharing this history. Verses 9 through 10, it says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So now Stephen moves through the timeline. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, whom Joseph is one of. And he starts moving into to this brief overview of Joseph's life. And if you remember this story, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him and sold him into slavery. They put blood on his coat. They made his father think that he was dead. But God was still with him even all of this, through all of this. Now, some of you, if you just read the story, you would think that God was not with Joseph. Joseph gets a little cocky, ticks his brothers off. They throw him in a pit, decide they don't want him to die, sell him into slavery, put some blood on his coat. And then if you know the story of Joseph, it's this moments of like, even in the midst of his affliction, he finds favor. And then all of a sudden, you know, his feet get kicked out from underneath him. And then he finds favor and his feet get kicked out from underneath him. And he finds himself in, in prosperity 
and then prison and back and forth. He's either loved or hated by his masters. It's, it's really a roller coaster ride. You think, man, God's not in that. But we know the, the truth is that God was in it. He was, he was in with him even through all these difficult times. And Joseph experienced all kinds of ups and downs in his path towards becoming second only to Pharaoh. But he remained faithful to God through all the ups and downs as well. And then we're starting to see this pattern of God moving through different men to enact his plan. God rescued Joseph. God gave him favor. God gave him wisdom. But you'll notice one thing, that this all stuff all happened in Egypt. In other words, not in Israel. In other words, not within the temple. And you remember that Stephen is making this response to the accusations that he's blaspheming this holy place. He's blaspheming Moses and the word of God. And he's trying to explain to them, like, God doesn't need the temple to move. Matter of fact, God has moved in many different ways throughout history. And in verses 11 through 13, it says, Now there came a famine through all Egypt and Canaan. In great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers for the, on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. You see, Joseph knew that there was going to be a famine coming, right? Because he had interpreted the dreams that Pharaoh had given, or sorry, that God had given to Pharaoh. And they knew that there was a famine coming. So they weren't actually caught off guard because God gave Joseph wisdom, and Joseph says, listen, we're going to have seven years of plenty. We're going to have seven years of famine. So during the seven years of plenty, let's store up all the food that we can so that way when the famine comes, we're going to be ready. So they weren't caught off guard because because God was moving through Joseph, and Joseph was actually able to use this food to trade with those who didn't have it in other nations, and it actually was able to prosper the kingdom of Egypt. But during this time, as the famine's coming on, Joseph's family is starting to struggle as well. And Joseph's father, he hears that there's food in Egypt, and he sends his sons to see if they could go buy some food. And we don't have time for the whole story, but Joseph recognizes his brothers sends him back to his father. They come back again, and he finally reveals himself, and he gets to meet uh, his younger brother. He gets to have uh, uh, his, his family meets Pharaoh, and they just find great favor, all because of what God had done through Joseph. The Scripture says that what they had meant for, for evil, God used for good. The interesting thing is, is that now we have the patriarchs of the Jews, the leaders of the 12 tribes. They're now being blessed in Egypt. They're being taken care of in Egypt. Once again, not the land of Israel. And obviously the temple has not been built yet. Then in verses 14 through 16, it says, And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And our fathers, they carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. 
So even though Joseph is living in this foreign land, he had not forgotten who he was. He was living in a culture that was so different from his own. And he had done quite well for himself in this culture. I mean, there were some ups and downs along the way, but at this point, he is now second only to Pharaoh. As a result of God working through Joseph, Joseph's family gets moved to Egypt. You see, Joseph didn't forget his family. And when they came for food, he takes care of them. He sends them up there. And then he actually, if you know the story, he, he talks to Pharaoh and, and actually gets them jobs in Egypt so that they can grow and they prosper there. You see, God's plan was to provide for Israel in the midst of a great drought through Egypt by them living and enjoying the resources of Egypt. And then God led them there to fulfill what was told to Abraham. Genesis 15, 13 says, And then the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, Know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and then they will be afflicted for 400 years. God is setting up to fulfill his promise. And then in verses 17 through 19, it says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race, and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. You see, many of us might be thinking, well, this doesn't seem like a very good promise. It seems like they're getting a pretty raw deal. They're transplanted to Egypt, moved away from the home, their home, and uh, after a short period of prosperity, things don't turn out so great for them. While it was good at first, and the people prospered, the people multiplied, right? They show up, they increase, they multiply, they're prospering. Eventually, things would change. And Stephen pointed out that they were actually headed towards the time of the promise that God had told to Abraham. That's what he says here, is that the time of the promise is drawing near, where, his, where, where Abraham's offspring would inherit this land. But they got to go through some stuff first. Because after they were transplanted to Egypt, and after Joseph and the pharaohs that, that, that knew Joseph had died, the new pharaoh, the new king of Egypt ends up treating Israel pretty poorly. Eventually, they're completely enslaved. And it was so bad that Pharaoh mentioned, the Pharaoh mentioned here, this king, that's what it means here. It says that he forced our fathers to expose their infants. Basically what he is saying is that that Pharaoh required all the firstborn males among the, the Hebrews to be killed. He ordered the midwives to kill these young boys. They're to kill every male newborn. But in verses 20 through 22, it says, And this time Moses was born. So now we've gone through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and now we're getting to Abraham. 
or to Moses. In the midst of the oppression, this oppression, um, verses 20 through 22, it says, At this time Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up three months in his father's house, and then when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. In the midst of this incredible oppression, Moses is born. And it's interesting that God didn't choose the best times to bring Moses, the one who would lead them towards their promised land. But instead, it's during the worst times. They're enslaved. Every male child is supposed to be killed. Matter of fact, um, it says here that that uh, uh, his son was exposed. And what he means is he was set to die. And you remember they, they put him in the basket and the reed floated him down the river and, and, and the Pharaoh's daughter found him. You see, God never does things the way that we expect him to do things. The greatest example of that is he sent our Savior in the most fragile form that could be uh, ever sent in, a baby. Not how we would have done it. But Pharaoh's daughter finds him because Moses was protected from being killed. And then, then he gets exposed or put in the, in, the, in the basket in the reeds. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, decides to raise him as her own. And I've always found this is an amazing story because through God's grace, Pharaoh says, grabs Moses' mom and says, hey, I have this baby I want taken care of. You take care of it for me until he gets a little bit older, basically to nurse him. She got to, God is so faithful. She got to take care of her own son. And Pharaoh's daughter thought it was her own idea. (laughs) And then Moses grows up to be one one of the, if not the most important figure in Israel's past, Israel's history. Many people would argue that he's even more important than Abraham. He was the deliverer of their people after 430 years in captivity in Egypt. God used him to save his people. And even Jesus is prophesied to be a prophet like him. Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. And once again, <clears throat> I'll remind you as we're going through this, because in some ways a lot of this speech doesn't make sense unless you keep remembering why Stephen is making this speech. It's, it's a response to these things. Once again, I'll read Acts 6, 13 through 14. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You see, Stephen is using these stories to show that God's plan has always been in motion throughout the history of the Jews. Different men have been at the forefront of it. Different locations have been at the forefront of it. And God's blessing and provision and his plan, they're not dependent on a specific place or person. If God wants to use a new man, Jesus, to institute his plan and ultimately get rid of the temple for his new plan, which really was the plan from the beginning, why are they resisting? Why are they pushing back against what God wants to do? 
And this is actually where we're in today. Like I said, I'm sorry if it's a little abrupt. This is a, a long speech that I couldn't fit in one message. But I think we can, we can see the point that Stephen is making. Why are they resisting if God wants to change his plan? If God wants to do something new? When the Israelites were in the desert, and obviously this happens after the time frame we're talking about, or that Stephen's talking about. But when the Israelites were in the desert, the glory cloud of God would settle in a place. And when that happens, the Israelites would set up camp. And when God would pick up and move to a new place, the the glory cloud would pick up and move to a new place, the Israelites would pack up everything they have and they would follow God to wherever he was leading them. It's a shame that these people who once picked up, packed up, and moved wherever God was leading them are refusing to move from the spot that they had planted themselves in at that time. And church, it's really easy for us to, to look at these stories in the Bible and point fingers and criticize. But the truth is, is that we do the same thing all the time. We find a place that we're comfortable. We like how things are. And God's ready to to pack up and move out, do something new. And we just want to stay where we're at. So church, I would encourage you. Encourage me too. I want to be a church where when God moves, we move with him. Amen.